Hey, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13 again today uh, as we continue to walk through 1 Corinthians together as a church family. And uh, apparently I moved my bookmark this week, so shame on me. Hey, there we go. So uh, just by way of quick review before we get into the text, uh, chapters 12, 13, and 14 are about spiritual gifts and yet in a greater way about your spiritual maturity. So often when we think about these chapters, we tend to think about spiritual gifts and it talks about it a lot. And yet the, the whole text here, everything in it, is not just about you knowing what gift you have, how to use it, when to use it, but actually about your spiritual maturity, your walk with Christ, your obedience to him, uh, your concept of yourself as a servant of God who has received blessings from God so that you can make the most of Jesus in your life by glorifying him in your everyday actions and in the way that you use your supernatural gifting, whatever that gifting may be. Uh, that being said, uh, we want to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit doesn't want you just sitting around waiting for life to happen around you or watching other people using their spiritual gifts going, good job. Uh, he wants you off the bench, right? He didn't just call you to be a bench warmer. He wants you out of the balcony. He doesn't just want you watching and critiquing. He wants you on his team, engaged, practicing with the team, getting together with the team, praying with the team, and he wants you in the game. He didn't just call you to practice your faith privately. He designed you and gifted you so that you can work with Christ publicly, and so you, he wants you in the game. Uh, also, um, we want to remember that we as a church, as we use our gifts, and most specifically, as we act in unity together, our evidence of and an expression of Jesus. So you remember we, we talked about that week that there's this profound lack of unity in the world. Uh, in fact, the most common way to find unity is to, although we claim that we like diversity, we tend to press out diversity and try to make everybody this, as much the same as possible. But the truth is that Christianity embraces diversity as a gift from God, whether that's diversity in gifts, diversity in historic backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, uh, race, ethnicity, all these things that come together, united in the person of Christ, intent on one purpose together. And that unity is evidence of of Jesus, because it doesn't happen naturally, right? Like people don't get along through thick and thin naturally. The church does, though, because it works to stay unified in Christ. And then when we do that, that love is an expression of Jesus to each other and to the world around us, okay? And then uh, last week, we talked about three traps or pitfalls that can keep us from knowing Jesus' love and growing in it. The first was performing, right? So you're performing to receive accolades and praise. The next was possessing and being defined by your possessions, not just the tangible ones, but maybe especially the intangible ones. The privilege, the position, the accolades, and the respect of others can stack up, and we can feel like that defines us. The problem is, is at that point in time, we become completely self-focused and aren't focused on loving Jesus and loving others. And then finally, producing and providing, right? So that's that ability to take care of other people, the, the lure of power and prominence in other people's lives based on your ability to give for them and make for them. And that doesn't mean that any of those things are bad, right? It's not bad to achieve. It's not bad or wrong to have possessions or, or even position and title. It's not bad to provide for others. In fact, it's good. But without love, all of those things are worthless. In fact, it says, if I have all faith, but I do not have love, 
that I have nothing. It's of no significance, right? If I have enough faith to move the mountain, if I can teach uh, everybody eloquently everywhere and I don't have love, it produces nothing. So it talks about a lack of significance of self and a lack of significance of accomplishments without love. And then today, we're going to be talking about what love is or what love looks like. Now, um, many of you know that I grew up in a religious setting, but I didn't know Christ until I was almost 20. Um, when somebody shares their testimony, uh, often they kind of grab the highlights, you know, the, the big things that you need to know to get through the testimony, to understand uh, that they gave their life to Jesus. But one thing that I often step over in the midst of my testimony is this profound moment where I was transferring from Loyola University in Chicago to Judson University. That doesn't matter, but that was a, a secular school. It was a Catholic school, but none of us really talked about Jesus very much there. There were a few people, but certainly not me or my friends, uh, to a Baptist school where everybody talked about Jesus like all the time. And it was kind of weird. They were weird people in my book when I first got there. Uh, maybe you have felt that before around Christians. And on Friday night, I was invited to play Ultimate Frisbee, which made my ears kind of start doing this thing, you know, because I really like Ultimate Frisbee. That, that was my jam. I didn't play basketball or anything like that, but I loved Ultimate. And so I got invited to play Ultimate, and it was a blast. And these guys were some of the best Ultimate Frisbee players I had ever played with before. I mean, they were, they were really good. They were athletic. They were skilled. They were fast. They were good communicators. They had amazing teamwork. One of the things that hit me during that time is that there was a level of camaraderie that I had never seen before. There were friends there that showed a deeper bond of love than I was familiar with anywhere I had ever been. Their love to me stood out more than their athleticism, more than their skill, more than all the fun that they had. By the middle of the game, I was watching these guys get along, and I just couldn't believe it. There was never any ill will. There was never any discouragement. If somebody completely messed up a play, no one had a cross eye, let alone a cross word towards them. There was just encouragement and moving forward constantly. Beyond that, you could see that some of these people had this incredible bond. Even though they were on other teams, there was congratulations. Like, that was an awesome catch. I can't believe that block. That was amazing. I saw that happen, right? It didn't matter what happened on the field. Everybody was celebrating every moment of it. It felt kind of weird. And yet it didn't violate the competitive spirit of the game. Isn't that interesting? They, they could compete with each other forcefully at times, but still come down as comrades and brothers. And then there was this really wild moment where all of a sudden uh, the two team captains called timeout and called like all 24 of us together in the middle of the field. And, and they were like, okay, guys, thanks for coming. And then they basically talked about nothing for like 90 seconds. And I was like, that, that was weird. And I was like, what was that all about? And one of the guys was like, never mind, it's cool. And then I looked and I saw these two young women walking up from the river in their undergarments. And I thought, these guys are crazy. This is not what would have happened at Loyola, by the way, right? This is not, we don't even need to go into that. But it hit me so hard that not only did they love each other, but they were willing to love these two strangers and not take advantage of the situation to consume the, the visage of these young women, how these young women looked for themselves and their pleasure even momentarily. And it was deeply convicting in my life as an unsaved young man but it also set out this platter before me of this thing that I deeply wanted, which was to know the type of love 
that they had in their midst. They never said, I love you. They just showed, I love you. Every moment that I was with them. And I was blown away, but I was also stuck because I didn't know how to get that. I knew that there was not the ability in me to produce what they had. That all of my morality, morality would fall short. That my personal ethics fell short of love every time. And it left me wondering. You know, I'm, I'm not the only one, though, that deals with this sort of thing. It's not new that the love of Jesus that is present in the church makes an impact on the world around us. In fact, the early Latin writer Tertullian of Carthage, you might have heard of him, you might not, doesn't matter, declared that the one thing that converted him to Christianity was not the arguments they gave him, because he could find a counterpoint for every argument that they would present. But he says, but they demonstrated something I didn't have. The thing that converted me to Christianity was the way that they loved each other. Now, I'm interested in pursuing that sort of love and cultivating that love in our midst, but today what we should do if we want that is probably to talk about that love and to think about that love and then to ask Jesus to continue to grow that love in our midst. But before we get into God's word, uh, let's pray and ask him to bless our time together. Father, I thank you so much for each and every person here, each and every person who's listening at home right now or watching at home right now even the ones who will listen and learn later. Father, I pray first and foremost that Jesus' love would be lifted high, that we would see the type of love that you evidenced in him, and that you would cause us to fall more in love with him and to desire more of his love in our own lives, both known for ourselves and shown to others. And Lord, Paul prays in Ephesians that you would equip us with the spiritual power that we need to know your love, because in our natural selves, we cannot comprehend it enough. And so we pray for your spirit to be on us today, to know the length, the height, the depth of your love. So we would grow into it more and more. Let your word ring true. Let my mouth speak your word. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Don, would you be able to click through and keep up as we head through. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give my body over in order to boast but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient Love is kind, love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable, and does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put aside childish things. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. 
Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. You know, at the beginning of this chapter, Paul warns the Corinthians, hey, you think that there's a superior way of life in operating your spiritual gifts. That makes you a holy and spiritual person. But Paul says without love, all of that spiritual action is actually nothing, and it's incredibly unspiritual. And so I'm going to show you a better way, the way of love. And then he starts to define love. He talks about love in a, a bunch of different ways. But the heart of this is that Paul is putting love in overalls, as Haddon Robinson says. He says that love is being put in the flesh for us to see. It puts a business suit on, it goes to work. It puts a jumpsuit suit on, it's going to the gym. It puts an apron on, it's going to the kitchen. This is what love looks like when we live life every day. Now, that's really challenging for us because we often leave love as a theory or an idea when we read the Bible, especially when we read about the agape love of God, his perfect love, his love that never fails, his unconditional love. And then we look at ourselves and we think, I don't have that unconditional love, and I don't know if I ever will. In fact, this week I was talking with a friend, and he said, I always heard this sermon as a kid on 1 Corinthians 13, and I would hear that without love, then everything I do is worth nothing, and it demotivated me. He didn't use that word, but what he said is that I just thought, why do anything? Because I'll never have God's perfect love. Therefore, since I won't have God's perfect love, what's the point of even trying? Isn't that interesting? And we see that, and, and we see that we fall short, but that's not, that's not the purpose of the text. The purpose, purpose of the text is to highlight the importance of growing in that love and pursuing that love more than anything else. Walking in the way of love as best as you can above everything else. And so Paul is now talking about what love looks like so that we can learn to love. Now, I will warn you of this. There's a way that we can hear this and know Jesus more, and there's a way that we can hear this and know Jesus less. The first is the way that calls us forward, trusting in Christ. The second is the way that calls us to be ashamed, backing away from the goodness that God has for us, feeling like there's no way we can accomplish that. And so let's prefer the first one, right? We realize in the ways that we are falling short, in the ways that we feel convicted, that God wants to work in our hearts, and it's an invitation to say, hey, Jesus, I see that your love and your ways are not my ways. Would you forgive me for that? And would you help me to learn to walk in your love? Put your character in me. And what's amazing is the New Testament is clear over and over again. That's exactly what God wants to do in you is to produce this loving character of Jesus. It's what he chose to do in your life before the foundation of the world for your good and his glory. And so you can take that to the bank and you never have to fall into shame then when you realize you're falling short. So the first thing that we see, uh, we're gonna jump past that, we're gonna jump past that, uh, is that uh, Paul reveals the marks of love. Paul reveals the marks of love. He says, love is patient, love is kind, Love is not jealous, is not boastful, is not arrogant. Love is patient. Anybody read the KJV or the NKJV still? Some of you? That's great. It's a good translation. I love the way that it talks about patience in that translation. Love has long suffering. We forget that patience is an act of choosing to suffer on some, for someone else's behalf. 
Think about what it means to have patience. I want something now, and I'm going to wait until I get it, and I'm going to do it in a way that is not rude to that other person. That I'm going to contain my suffering within myself for their benefit. Anybody know anybody who's good at long-suffering? Think of the example that they are in life. They're quiet. They're gentle in the midst of that. They're putting that other person first. But that knowledge that love is patient gives us something else. It says love is realistic. There are no perfect people around you. There are no perfect people in this church. Find the perfect church. You can't. None of us are perfect. All of us have faults and foibles. All of us sin. When love is patient, love is being realistic. It's saying, I know that people around me will not be perfect, and I will be patient in their imperfections. It's choosing patience beforehand, not waiting for the opportunity to arise and ask the question, will I be patient today? But instead, how will I be patient today? Because I'm going to encounter problems in other people, and I don't have to be the one to conquer those problems. And they're not even my problems, right? They're theirs. He says, love is kind. The mark of love is that those who love are ready to do what is good. They desire to do what is good. They want to lift the load. They want to ease the burden. They want to bring the word that will encourage. They want to turn the frown upside down, right? It's a little bit cliche, and yet they're always looking to do the kind thing for somebody else. Reminds me of being a Boy Scout. Do a good turn daily. I remember thinking when I got older, just one isn't that mark just a little bit low? I could be done by that with that by 6.30 in the morning, right? I mean, that's, that seems so easy. Love doesn't give up with just one. It says, always good for others all the time. How can I be kind to you today? He says, love does not envy. It's okay with what other people have. It's not jealous of their gifting, their intelligence, their house, their car, their shoes, their spouse, their body, their personality, whatever it is. It says, that is good, and I'm grateful that you have that, and I don't, I don't want what you have. Not in an offensive way, though, right? Because that can be said offensively. But what you have is good, and I'm, I'm good without that. I don't need to be jealous for that. I don't want your privilege or your position in life. I don't need to demand your blessings for me, and I will never seek them in an illicit way in an ungodly way. Love is not arrogant. Love is not puffed up. It accepts that everything that it has is from God and has no reason to make itself more important in the midst of that. It spends its time thinking about God's favor and kindness towards them and then shows that favor to others because it's not about itself, but it's about God and others in the midst of that. And then love is not arrogant, right? Or love is not boastful, pardon me. It sees that uh, it doesn't need to parade itself. It doesn't need to walk around and say, I am so awesome. Isn't that interesting? This is actually a mark of success in our culture, being able to parade yourself around. If you have a business, you're being told right now that if you don't parade your business, you won't be successful. But we all know businessmen who paraded themselves and had that parade get popped, and then it turns into a great amount of unsuccess, right? Everybody remembers Bertie Madoff. Yeah, 
He was the bee's knees until he wasn't, and everybody knew it. Paul puts love on display here. But next, this is about the marks of love internally, but next he's going to talk about love socially. What does love look like in social settings? Have you ever noticed sometimes that you, you know that there's love inside, but then you get into the moment and it's hard to let love play out? And you're like, how do, how do I make love work in this situation? I'm going to have to choose better words there. How do I cause love to work in this situation? How do I bring it out of me and about in the midst of what's going on? Because it's intense or it's hard or I'm feeling jealous or I'm feeling selfish. So how do I let love win over the things that are going on? So we're going to talk about love in four different ways. And by the way, I I absolutely stole this from another pastor. Uh, Please don't think that I'm this brilliant. Uh, Sometimes you come across somebody else's work and you say, I probably shouldn't reinvent the wheel because this one's pretty good. So uh, I'm thankful for Haddon Robinson and his wisdom today. He says that love has good manners. Paul writes that love is not rude. Well, what is a lack of rudeness? It's a presence of good manners. That kindness, that social contract that we all have with each other that is there. But it, it takes that even a step further because our social contract is don't do to other people what you don't want done to you, right? That's the American way. I didn't do that to you. Why are you doing that to me? But Jesus' social contract goes a little further. He says, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. So manners is actually not just a withdrawal and a holding back, but it's a deposit. It's giving to others automatically because you see that that is what is good. You know, sometimes manners get disposed of on the West Coast. Have you noticed how informal we are? And we talk about running on beach time, right? There was a a moment a couple months ago where I was running like five minutes late to our staff meeting at the church here, and I was just struck by the fact that me, in my not managing my schedule that day, was being incredibly rude to everybody in that room because they were all waiting on me. And my five minutes was actually using like 25 minutes of time from other people. I realized how rude that was in that moment. And I went, I don't want to do that again. That's ill-mannered. That's not good towards those people right now. Manners come from often a concept of etiquette. Etiquette is a French word. You can just tell by spelling it, right? Like who puts Q-U in the middle of a word? We have other letters for that. Thank you, France. So they, they make this word etiquette, but it actually comes from a card that you would receive when you came to court. So when you came to the French court, it was a big deal, right? There was a lot of pomp and circumstance, and it was a precarious situation because if you act poorly, it could lead to your death ultimately, but it would probably at least lead to your social death, which might be even worse. And so you were given a card of expected behaviors, how you should dress, where you should stand, when you should speak, the types of things that you should say in addressing other people. It it was a card of expectations on you from others. Now that's a little bit odd because this is the other way around. It's you determining what you can expect from you for others in advance. Not what they can demand from you, but you want what you want to give towards them. It's not an external thing placed on you. It's an internal thing going out from you in the midst of everything that you're going through. So love is not rude and love does not behave itself unseemly. It's not an old-fashioned thing, but it's a very present thing. I want you to think about it like this. When you're in a situation and you see someone 
being rude, how does that impact you? How does that affect you? You're at a restaurant, and the person next to you, at the table next to you, didn't get what they wanted, and they handle it in a way that is unseemly. They're making a scene. They're berating the other person. Does it just impact their table? No, it it impacts their server. It impacts all of the tables around them because they needed to be rude to get what they wanted. I I heard a story a while ago about some pastors who were at a conference. It was actually pastors and then seminary professors, and they were having a big Bible conference in a major metropolitan area. And the night before the conference began, the head pastor of the church that was hosting it took some of the other guests out and the keynote speaker out to dinner at a restaurant. They were eating dinner, and as the server came to refresh drinks or give drinks, the server brushed the cup of that person, and it spilled their water into their lap. And he became unhinged, and he just laid into her. He didn't just let her know that he didn't appreciate being doused with cold water. He told her what he thought of her and her work, and she left almost in tears. And after she left, the host of the Bible conference leaned over and said, Dr. So-and-so, I dare you to share the gospel with her. When she comes back, why don't you witness to her? He couldn't. He wouldn't. It would be wholly offensive, wouldn't it? His life manner didn't reflect the manner of Jesus. That's all that he had to say. He didn't need to berate him. He just pointed out the gap. We need to remember that our comportment, our behavior, is representative of Jesus. That our good will towards others, the favor that we show them, which is what manners are, is demonstrating the favor that Jesus has showed us. When you spill ice water in Jesus' lap, how does he handle it? What does he do? I know you're like, I've never been to dinner with Jesus. But just (laughs) metaphorically, when you do things that are offensive to Jesus accidentally or even on purpose, how does Jesus handle it with you? Kindly. He doesn't roast you. He doesn't blow you up. That's why he died on the cross, was so that you could have the privilege of offending him without incurring his wrath. He took the wrath so you can experience his grace. That's what manners are. It's grace. Don't we call them that? Social graces. Giving to others what they may not deserve. Filling the gap for other people's foibles and faults. You know, it's interesting because there's a way to have manners but still be rude. There's a way to follow the rules but to do it in a way that's offensive. It's because it's, it's not just that etiquette or manners alone makes the difference here. It's manners that are filled with love. Love gives manners soul. Manners and etiquette without love is snobbery. Have you ever engaged in snobbery? Me too. Me too. I need to guard myself against this. Uh, my wife and I, we, we enjoy food. I'd call our, us foodies, but we're not wealthy enough to really be foodies, so we're like micro-foodies or something like that. I don't know if that makes us more hipster or just broke. But either way, we love food. And sometimes when we are enjoying food together, we can talk about what we enjoy, and then we can critique it. 
And sometimes when my wife makes me an excellent meal, I will talk about how I love the food, and then I will critique it. That's manners without love. It just is. There's no reason for their critique there, right? It's, it's a bad habit in me. It's not out of a lack of love that's desired to be expressed, but it's lack of love planned and played out. And so I've learned there's no need for critique. She made an excellent meal. It doesn't need to be better. It doesn't need this extra spice that we don't own added. It didn't need to be presented in this different way. It was a gift to me as it was. And for me to have manners, for me to have love, just means to express gratitude, right? Now, this can go the other way, because I've heard wives do things like, thanks for mowing the lawn, but you hit my petunias, (laughs) right? Maybe you could ask gently for him to have more care as he chops down the vegetation that you don't want, and some that you did. They will grow back. Grace matters in those moments. Rudeness is often the practice of a virtue without love, right? Think about it like this. I'm honest, but I don't have sympathy. And so what do I say? I'm brutally honest. You're just going to have to deal with that. Wow, that's who you want to be? You're candid without any kindness at all. You forget that it's truth given in grace that matters, that we speak the truth with love, and when we speak the truth without love, it becomes a lie, because it doesn't reflect love, which is the ultimate and true reality, if you want to think about it philosophically. I heard a pastor once say that the funny thing about people who call a spade a spade is that they often treat people like dirt, don't they? (laughs) Sorry, sorry, Flint. (laughs) It's, we're actually, thank you for the transition. <laughs> Corinth had potlucks. And their potlucks should have been filled with love. But Paul had to correct their potlucks, didn't he? He said that you're getting together for this love feast, but it's anything but a love feast. It's a feast of selfishness. And you wealthy people, you're arriving early with all of your opulent food and you're sharing it with your favorite people. And then when the people who need to be most loved arrive, there's nothing left for them and you leave them out altogether in the ante room instead of the room of favor and blessing, the room for the wealthy. He says, when you gather together, don't do it this way. It's a shame that you're so full of food and wine when they arrive that you don't even care that they've come. It's okay that we have favorite people but it doesn't mean that they're the only people that we treat with favor. Paul says instead, wait for everybody to arrive. The reality in Corinth is that there were slaves coming to that church, and that meal may have been the best meal of the week and may have been their only meal that day. Sometimes when we arrive to greet one another or after church, it's possible that we fall into the Corinthian trap and we rush to see the people that we care about first. We get into our conversations and we forget to see the stranger in our midst. And I've seen it happen before, where someone comes in and they're hoping to encounter a loving church and they experience a lot of love. And then they see us all get up and we all turn to each other and they're there standing there holding their coffee and cookies and they just resign themselves to leave. 
And I can tell you this, that it doesn't matter how friendly I am at the door at that moment. They've just experienced a social group clicking shut. And instead of remembering to be the inclusive community of Christ, we become the closed community of our favorites. And we need to guard against that. I'm just saying this gently because I think gen- generally, genuinely, that's not our heart in this church, right? And I, and I don't want to bruise you or abuse you with this. It's just something that we need to guard against. You know, if you struggle with this exclusivity and this lack of favor, think about it like this. Who were you when Jesus sought you? I mean, did you really matter? Are you so important that the, for the universe eternally that the king of the universe would pause time, step out of heaven, live as a human, suffer and die on the cross for you? Probably not. And me either. And I'm not saying this to shame you, but to point out to you that if the king of the universe stopped to include you in his plans, in his love, in his grace, Don't you think that you might be able to do the same thing for someone else? Jesus, in telling parables about love, tells this parable about a shepherd who has a hundred sheep. Ninety-nine of them make it back into that sheepfold safely at the end of the day. And there's just one sheep missing. I mean, the shepherd got a 99% on the day. Isn't that pretty good? And instead of just rejoicing, like, that's pretty much nailing it, right? He's concerned for the one. And he leaves the rest of the sheep and he hunts them. He seeks that sheep out. Some of you have picked up this heart of the shepherd thing. I've seen you seek others who you know in this church who need to be brought back in, and I've seen you seek the stranger and just say, hi, you know, I'm, I'm Fran. Welcome. Hi, uh, my name's Richard. I'm so glad that you're here. Tell me, what's your story? And when you take those steps You're embodying the love of Jesus. You're not just having good manners, you're having manners with soul. Manners that say that each person you encounter matters. Love has good manners. Love doesn't want to see harm come to others and does everything they can to prevent it within their power and responsibility. Next we see that love has good motives. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not self-seeking. Love sees that the benefits that you have are not ultimately your own or for you. They've been given to you by God to care for others. We say this like this, I have been blessed by God to bless other people. The blessings that I receive are not for me. I get to enjoy them, praise God, but they're ultimately for others. Have you realized that in your life? I mean, do you realize that your car can be Christ's car and your car? And you can view yourself as the steward of that. Have you said, Jesus, however you can get glory from my Subaru or my Chevy or even my Ford, I want you to get the glory for it. I own both of those, by the way. I have no Subaru, uh, and I'm okay with that. But uh, the, the heart of this is that everything I have can be used for others. I I listen to this podcast called The World and Everything in It. It's a great uh, news podcast, Monday to Friday, 30 minutes. Hits the highlights, is encouraging. Uh, And they were talking about how in January here, uh, the new words of the year come out for 2022. And one of the dictionaries chose the word goblin mode. I think it's hyphenated. You know, I was listening to the podcast. And I thought, 
I must live under a rock, which I already knew that I'm a little bit of a troglodyte, a cave dweller. I don't really key into everything all the time here on the peninsula with the culture. And, and then they started to explain what goblin mode was. And goblin mode is a cultural expression that basically says that for a little while, I'm just going to get what I want. And it's just me time that I should be able to gobble up anything that I desire in that moment because that's what's good for me. And I just was so struck by how sad that was, and yet how real that is in our culture. We want you to be happy no matter the cost, and we're now willing to embrace this idea that what it takes for you to be happy is for you to hit goblin mode occasionally and just get what you want, which we really call what we need, right? And so we just go for it. We just go for what we want, and I just thought, man, isn't that the opposite of love with good motives, that we, we now have a word for self-seeking beyond selfishness, goblin mode, and it's something that apparently we all are going to hit occasionally, and it's okay. Let's just be okay with goblin mode, and I'm like, boy, that, that reminds me of the church of Galatia, where Paul warned, be careful in your backbiting, lest you consume each other. When we become so strong at consuming who will we swallow up in the midst of everything that we're looking for? It's going to be people that we love eventually. Because when I'm in goblin mode, I'm, I'm not thinking about others. My, my motivation are wrong, is wrong. You know, the reality is that on our own, most of the arrows of life point towards us. What we want, what we're getting. We try to pause the arrows that we don't like. I don't like that. Please don't give me that. And we try to maximize the arrows that we do like. You know what? That makes sense. That makes sense because we ultimately are sponges of affection and affirmation and all of these things that make us feel good. But when love has good, has good motives, it recognizes that all of those things need to come to me from the Lord, that he needs to be my rock and my security, my surety, my portion, and my blessing. And when we put our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit starts a work in us that starts to turn those arrows around so that you're less concerned about what's incoming and more focused on what's outgoing from you in the midst of the life that you're living. You know, the Galatian church struggled with this. Paul has to talk about what they eat with them. Doesn't it seem weird to bring up what you eat in the context of love? In our culture, that's wholly unloving to bring up what somebody else eats to talk about their love, right? But Paul talks about the meat sacrificed to idols with them. And he's really clear. He says, listen, if you understand theology at all, if you understand God, you know that an idol is nothing, especially when compared to God. That these things are just statues carved from stone and wood, the inventions of people's heads so that they can have a religious system that comforts them in the midst of their peril, but it doesn't really deliver them from the things that they're facing because it's just a lump of junk at the end of the day. And so meat sacrificed to idols is nothing. Paul says in one way, don't worry about it at all. But you know what? It's not the food that's the real concern here. It's the one who's with you. And so he says, when you go to a feast, and that person who's leading the feast says, and this is from my sacrifice to Aphrodite. And Aphrodite is so good that everything that she gives us is succulent and sweet. And so let's praise Aphrodite for the meat that we're about to eat today. You know what you should do? just have salad for their sake because your motivation is to not confuse them 
But if somebody invites you to a feast and and you know they're not like that and you get there and and there's another brother in Christ in there or sister in Christ in there, you, you both have freedom to be there. You don't need any other reason to be there than I wanted to come. It doesn't have to be spiritual. You don't have to, to be there to stand out in the crowd or deliver the four spiritual laws or anything like that. You could just go to the feast to enjoy it. But if the person next to you gives you that little elbow and says, do you know where they picked up these ribs? They were at the idol market today. Even though it doesn't bother you, they're bringing it up for a reason. And in one way, they've just ruined the whole feast for you, right? Because guess who's not having the ribs? But you're sacrificing your desire for their need, and your motives towards them are good. Paul concludes the section on meat and idols in 1 Corinthians 10.24, and he says, nobody is to seek his own good, but the good of the other. Paul says it like this in Philippians 2, consider the example of Jesus, who although he existed in equality with God, in the very form of God, did not regard his equality with God as a thing to be grasped for his own advantage. He didn't consider his own godness for his own advantage, but instead thought, since I am God, what can I do for others. Now, this is the example that we have in Christ, and it's the example of the motivations that we're called to have as followers of Jesus. You know, one of the greatest ways that I see self-seeking in our culture is in our habits of listening. When we listen, we often listen with wrong motives. We're listening for advice that we can share, correction that we can give, information that we need to ignore. We're overloaded with information in general in our culture, and that means that listening to someone is a luxurious gift to them because you're taking in new information that maybe you didn't even ask for. But the reality is that listening to someone else with the goal of understanding them and showing them understanding first and foremost is a motivation of love. When we listen, we're not there to seek our own ideas and opinions, but instead to seek to love and understand others. Proverbs says that the fool is only interested in expressing his own ideas, and often I discover that myself and many others are really good at playing the fool. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in Life Together, the first service that one owes to others in fellowship consists in listening to them. Just Just as love to God begins with listening to his word, so the beginning of love for the brethren is learning to listen to them. It is God's love for us that he not only gives us his word, but also lends us his ear. So it is his work that we do then for our brother when we learn to listen to him. Christians, especially ministers, so often think that they must always contribute something when they are in the company of others, that this is the one service that they have to render. They forget that listening can be a greater service than speaking. It's so important that we learn to listen to other people with good motives, seeking to understand and love them first. You know, I have a good few friends who are really good at this, and what's amazing is that often when they speak, they say the types of things that they want to say, but because they've bothered to listen and to love first, their words have more significance and meaning because they're given in grace. They're speaking the truth, but it's already been demonstrated that they love and that they accept 
So it's not contentious. It's not forceful. It's not rebuke. It's not harsh. It's a gift of grace, even when they're words of challenge. Next, Paul says that love has good mood. Love is not irritable. You know, our culture is kind of irritable right now. We've collectively become crabby. And you know what? It makes sense. It's been a hard few years. And it seems like the beatings are going to continue until morale improves, right? The sad thing is that beatings often don't improve morale. But I think we have reason to be in good mood. Paul says, be of good cheer. Jesus says, do not fear because I've already overcome the world, right? We know that Jesus is doing good. The thing about irritable people is that they often want other people to make allowance for them. Their desires, their opinions, the way they see it, the way they set things up to be, but they forget to make allowance for other people in the same way. They think that their ideas, what they want, should come first. And they're willing for you to sacrifice to make that happen, aren't they? And they're willing to let you know about it. Now, sometimes we all get there. How many of you have had a a day where there's been some irritation that day? Sometimes I feel like I get irritated when I'm dying the death of a thousand paper cuts that day. You know, like things aren't going well already, and then my foot happens to catch the planter on the way out the door and spill my wife's plant all over the living room. Like, sheesh, I needed that right now. And I'm not irritated with the children or my wife, but my words sure sound like they are, right? In that moment, my love doesn't have a good mood. And I need to repent and apologize for that. Maybe you've been in the same place before. But for some of us, that's not the irritability that we're talking about. Irritability has settled on you like a fall fog. It's come in and it doesn't show any signs of stopping. It clouds everything that happens. You're kind of wound tight inside. You could be a tuning fork for other people to figure out if they're irritated. You don't lose your temper because your temper's always, always right there in front of you, right? You know where it's at. Irritation for you is maybe like drinking is for other people, or shopping, or binge eating. It just feels like part of who you are. I get that. I know what it's like to have a piece of your soul that you'd like to just let go of because it doesn't seem to be fitting with everything else that Jesus is doing. But that irritability is not love. And it's something that Jesus wants to change in you. There's an old story from around World War I. There was a, a, a chaplain in the Prussian army, a, a man by the name of La Fontaine. And there was a colonel in his company who was said to be incredibly irascible and irritable. And whenever the troops were near him, they made sure their shoes were polished, that their bayonets were gleaming, that their rifles were cared for. The line was a little bit straighter when he was around. The tent pegs were a little bit tauter, or the tent ropes were a little bit tauter in the pegs that they were tied to. But the issue was is that he chewed people up, and he had a bad reputation for it. And so the chaplain, speaking with the colonel alone once, said, let me ask you this. If your king came and did some of the things that you were irritable with others about, would you treat your king irritably? He said, no. No, I would never do that to the king. He's more important. I, I wouldn't treat him that way. And then the chaplain said subtly, well, I'd like to introduce you to a different king. He's the king of the universe, Jesus. And he's with you wherever you go. And he says, when you treat one of these who is less than you, 
like that, you're doing it unto me. And he left it as that. And he left the room quickly because he's a wise man. (laughs) A few days later, the colonel came to him and said, you know, I really appreciate what you said to me. And whenever you see me acting in that way again, I want to ask you to remind me of the king. I want to remind you of the king. Jesus says, do everything as if you were doing it unto me. He says, the way that you treat people who you think are less than you reflects the way that you treat me, and it demonstrates your love for me. Give up your irritability. Let Jesus work on your mood. You know what? If you fall, if you become snappy again, if you're thinking those thoughts and you feel that irritability racing through your mind, you feel your pulse rise, your, your heartbeat increase, confess. Just tell God, I'm sorry. I'm doing it again. Admit it to Jesus and then receive his forgiveness and dwell in his grace. You know, one thing I find with people that struggle, struggle with irritability, irritability is not just that they're irritated with the people around them, but they're often irritated even with themselves and disappointed in their own actions at the heart of it all. You need to marinate your heart in grace. You need to remind yourself that Jesus has favor for, for you even when you don't have favor for yourself. And you need to invite him and let him work in you. Next, Paul tells us that love has a bad memory. Love does not keep a record of wrongs done. Complete this phrase. Shame, or fool me once, shame on me. Fool me twice, or shame on, yeah, fool me twice. I'm really bad at that phrase. I have a bad memory. Thank you. Yeah, me and Jesus. His bad memory is better than mine. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, right? Like I should learn, like I should remember. And, and in one way, we need to know that reality, right? I mean, you don't want to trust people with things that they're untrustworthy about. We need to know people for real and who they are. We need to not expect people to be strong in their weaknesses. And yet there's another sense. This, this makes sense existentially. See, we see real wrongs. Real wrongs happen to us and others. And there's this thing that happens where we rear up inside and we feel that anger for the moment. And, you know, we, we have these good desires. They, they need to be held accountable, right? And they probably do need to be held accountable. They need to be responsible, Wouldn't it be great if everybody who did wrong took responsibility for that? But then there's this extra step that happens. They need to pay. They need to make up for what they did wrong. The problem is is that our sense of justice often doesn't match God's. What's God's economy when it comes to justice? Who paid for your sin? He did, right? He paid for your sin. See, we often say, I forgive, but I cannot forget. But the reality is is that we don't often want to forget. I heard a pastor once tell a story about uh, receiving a new calling, and he was going around, and he was having dinner with the folks in the church, getting to know them, and he, he was, met this couple that was delightful, and he was excited to go to their house for a meal, and he got there, and, and they spent the, the first 30 minutes telling them about this terrible experience that they had at church once. Uh, the, the, the wife was telling the story, and, and she was telling it with all this flourish and detail, and occasionally the husband would pipe in and say, no, 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 dear, that's not quite right. This person did this in that moment, and then this happened, and then she would graciously say, oh, yes, thank you, and then she would continue the story, and then, and then he said, and when did this happen? 
And they said, 10 years ago. Can you believe it? And he said, it's so funny because we tend to rehearse the things that we want to forget, that we desire to forget. We tend to walk through the pain over and over again. But oddly, Jesus is really good at forgetting what we remember and remembering what we forget. Jesus doesn't count your sin against you anymore. In fact, in Psalm 130, it says, as far as the east is from the west, so God has separated your sin from you. Isn't that awesome? He's saying, I'm going to forget your sin. It's completely gone from you. I'm not going to bring it up anymore. But so often, when we encounter people who have hurt us or our loved ones deeply, their sin becomes the first thing that we think about them and the last thing that we think about them. It becomes the whole definition of who they are. You know, Walter Russell says that the sweetest morsel morsel ever cooked up in the pots of hell is bitterness. But when you swallow it, it makes you sicker than you can believe. We need to guard ourselves against remembering the wrong things. Hebrews 10 says that God is not unfaithful to forget the labors of love that you have done towards the saints. See, we tend to forget what good people did and allow them to be defined by the wrong that they did. But God reverses that. He remembers the good that they did. He remembers what was right and perfect and holy and worthy of praise. And he forgets all the rest. And he makes these things eternally true. And he takes away the rest. God forgets what we remember and remembers what we forget. What do you need to forget today? What do you need to give up rehearsing in your mind? What story are you telling yourself about somebody else? What have you decided that somebody is in your heart? Because God probably doesn't think of them that way. If it's a wrong done, if it's a foible, even if it's a defect in their character, because love hopes in all things, and love believes, believes God in all things. Not that they have hope of transformation without him, but that you believe in transformation in Christ that you can't even imagine yet. You know, growing in love has a means. And that means is Jesus. The way we grow in love is to look to Jesus. You know, if you read this chapter in this way, it makes a lot of sense. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus doesn't envy. Jesus isn't boastful. Jesus is never arrogant. He's not rude. He's never self-seeking or irritable. Jesus doesn't keep a record of wrongs. Jesus finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Jesus bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. Jesus endures through everything. It's true, isn't it? But then you can turn that around and use it as a mirror. And then you can put your own name in there. Flint did this a couple weeks ago at his Bible study. He put me in there, and I just wanted to say, Flint, stop telling lies. That wasn't his point, though. He was saying that Christ in you is able to accomplish that. That Jesus is able to produce the love in you that you fall short in producing yourself. So in this, we see Jesus as the only one who accomplished this sort of love, but we also see Jesus as the only one who can accomplish this sort of love in you and in me. Well, what does that look like? Well, first it looks like 
looking at Jesus' example. Read the Gospels. Listen to other people tell you about the Gospels. Listen to other people tell you about the lavish grace that Jesus has poured out in, in their lives. And then wonder and be amazed and be thankful because that same grace that Jesus walked in is available to you right now today. Isn't that awesome? That Jesus is still grateful. Or Jesus, Jesus is still grateful. Yeah, uh, Jesus is still faithful. Jesus is still gracious. Jesus is still walking in the same way that he walked then. He didn't walk on earth for three years of suffering and then the earth killed him and he was like, won't do that. I'm done with you guys. I'm going to skip town and I'm never coming back. I saw this meme once. It was, I guess it was kind of a comic and, and it was some aliens coming to earth and they were talking with the humans and then the, the humans were like, this is so exciting and we also want to tell you about Jesus. And they were like, Jesus, we love that guy. And they, they were like, you know about Jesus? And, and, and they were like, the humans responded, oh, that's so amazing. We just, we just can't believe it. And they said, yeah, he visits us all the time. And the humans were like, huh? Well, we're waiting for him to come back with like wrath and punishment. And he's like, the, the aliens are like, what did you do to that guy? You know, like, <laughs> why would you deserve that? We often think that God is somehow mad at us. But the reality is, is that God loves you more than you can imagine or ask for. And we need to see that often because we live in a world that is full of unlove and ungrace, full of bad manners and bad motives and a terrible memory. And so we need to look to Jesus. But then beyond that, when we see that we fall short, we need to do this thing the Bible calls repenting, where we see the wrong that we did, and we need to turn away even from looking at that wrong, and we need to say, Jesus, this isn't the way that you called me to live, and I want to live like you called me to live. And so would, would you forgive me? You died on the cross for this, but I need to restore our relationship. And so would you, would you help me to walk in this forgiveness? And would you transform me? I invite you today to transform me. And you yield yourself to Jesus again. Instead of doing it your way, you do it his way. And then you abide in Jesus, John 15 says, which just means to dwell or remain in Jesus. You, you dwell in things all the time. Anybody try to go to the grocery store without the list written down? Yet you're dwelling in that list, right? You're, you're abiding there. You're walking through the store. You're like, bread, milk, ice cream. No, no. Uh, celery. The wife said celery, right? You're, you're staying on target. In the same way, you need to abide in Jesus. You need to have him on your mind and in your heart. I also just want to share this. You know, I talked about the beginning of the message. There was a time where I, I didn't know Jesus. And then I encountered people who did, who evidenced his love, and I realized that that love was something that I longed for in my heart. And maybe you're hearing this today, and you're realizing, like, this isn't love that I've ever known before. Maybe today is the day that you put your faith in Jesus. Maybe today is the day that you trust him, and you say, Jesus, I, I want the love that you are offering me. I want to dwell in this unending, unchanging love. If you put your faith in Jesus today, you will abide in that perfect love. The Bible says forever. And it's this amazing thing where you can come unlovable as you seem, and Jesus says, I love you, and if you ask him to accept you, he will. If you put your faith in him for everlasting life today, he gives it to you today. I just want you to understand that because I thought for the longest time that I had to earn it. And then I realized I didn't deserve it. But then I found out that he still loved me anyway, and he loves you too. You know, the best way of life is the way of love. 
Paul's trying to lay that out for us, and I, th- I think he did a really good job. And, and he makes this case for it at the end. He says, love never ends, but prophecies, they're going to end. Praying in tongues, that's going to cease. Knowledge of things is going to end because we're going to see it all perfectly. Right now, we, we know in part. We, we prophesy in part. We, we tell each other what's coming in part. But someday, the perfect is going to come, and this partial knowledge is going to end It's like we're going to be kids now and grow up later that that God is going to show us what we were meant to be forever. These people of love and everything that is not love will fade away. For we see as a reflection now in a mirror, but then face to face. We know in part now, but then we'll know fully as we're fully known. And these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these, Paul says, is love. Faith and hope are important. Trusting in Jesus is important. Having hope in all things because of Jesus is important. But the greatest of these is love. Because if you're aware of Jesus' love for you and if you love Jesus back, you have those other things automatically. And the more love you have, the more faith and hope you have. It's important for you to understand that. I want to share this legend out of early Christianity with you. The legend is this, that a wealthy merchant was traveling through the Mediterranean and looking for the distinguished Pharisee Paul, and he encountered Timothy, and Timothy arranged a visit for this wealthy merchant to visit Paul. Paul was at that time a prisoner in Rome, and stepping inside the cell, the merchant was surprised to find a rather old man, physically frail, but whose serenity and magnetism challenged the visitor. They talked for hours, and finally the merchant left Paul with Paul's blessing. Outside the prison, the concerned man inquired, what is the secret of this man's power? I have never seen anything like it before. Did you not guess, Timothy replied? Paul is in love. The merchant looked bewildered. In love? Really, that's it? Yes. Paul is in love with Jesus, was Timothy's reply. The merchant looked even more bewildered. That's all? Smiling, Timothy replied, that is everything. Paul tells us that love is everything. Let's pray. Lord, we want to come before you and ask for everything. We know it's bold. We know it's wild to think that somehow you would complete love in us more today. But we ask that you would, that you would pour your love into us. I'm sure right now everybody in the room can think of ways they were unloving this week. And we ask God that you would forgive us for that lack of love. That you would let your love wash away what is not right within us. Father, we thank you for those who have loved us when we don't deserve it, those who have had gracious manners with us, those whose motives for our lives have been better than our own, those who have been good to us even when we've been in a bad mood, those who have forgotten our sins. We ask, Lord, that you would make us more like Jesus this day and this week, that you would let love be perfected within us, that you would do the transforming work that only you can do. Lord, if we're honest, in our most fearful moments, we feel like we're never going to change. 
We see the same sin and the same selfishness crop up again and again. But if you're honest, you would tell us that's not true. And you would remind us of the ways that your love has grown in us. So we pray that you would grow your love in us more and more. And that Jesus would be perfected in our midst. Pray this in his name. Amen.